Global Governance Futures is brought to you from the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. How does the world hang together? What has gone wrong? And what has global governance got to do with it? To learn more, please visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. Complexity science seems to be having a moment as we close out 2021, cropping up more and more in policy discussions as well as academic debate. I found myself drawn to the intuitive, kind of obvious importance of many of its central ideas in my own research on existential risk. Not least, it's bracing to reckon with the limits of the Newtonian Cartesian worldview, which shapes so much of the way we think in the West. Complexity holds out the promise of discovering new maps for understanding reality, as well as new ways of being and acting in the world. That said, it can also be difficult to pin down, often arcane, or just downright confusing. For my money, Dave Snowden is one of the clearest voices out there working at the limits of applied complexity science. And as Dave makes clear in our conversation, whatever the challenges of working with complexity, work with it we must. Just go and ignore gravity and see what it does for you if you walk off a cliff. I mean, it's the equivalent to that. Complexity is. It's not its choice. If a system is complex, it doesn't have linear material causality. End of argument. It's deeply entangled. The only thing you know for certain is you'll get unintended consequences. So if you pretend complexity doesn't exist, you'll increase the number of unintended consequences and you'll increase the danger. And that's just one-on-one stuff. This is Imperfect Utopia or Bust global governance futures. Dave Snowden is the founder and chief scientific officer of Cognitive Edge, a management consulting firm specializing in complexity and sense-making. He's known for the development of the Kinefin framework, a heuristic to help decision makers identify and act under different system conditions. As you'll hear, this device is founded on a deep bedrock of systems theory, complexity theory, and continental philosophy, among others. We spoke with him in November 2021. Yeah, well, it's really fantastic to have you with us, Dave. I mean, obviously, you're sort of at the at sort of the, the pioneering edge of complexity theory, complexity application, and we've talked a lot about complexity on the podcast. In fact, actually, your work's been referenced by many guests: uh, Forrest Landry, Jordan Hall, Scott Williams, and I've I've actually used your your ontological framing between complicated complex in my own research. I found it incredibly helpful um, in thinking through uh, how do we approach the question of governing complexity in global politics. And I was, I was thinking about how to open this conversation and a, a quote came to mind. It might be an apocryphal quote, but it's a quote by Einstein. Einstein said, everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. And I wondered whether the, we might call this a heuristic that you and your colleagues take seriously in that you, you seem to be trying to make complexity theory, complexity practice, a resource for those who want to, to update their, their world models to more closely fit the kind of the very dynamic, turbulent, sort of complex times that we're living in, um, but also to resist the move to, to reductionism. So I, was, I wanted to ask whether that seems to be a, a useful frame uh, and also perhaps just to build Onto that, why is the move into reductionism so tempting? Why is it problematic? And is there a balance to be struck between simplicity and complexity? 
Okay, so I make a difference between being simple and being simplistic. And I think that's an important distinction. So yeah, let's go back to Heidegger famously said, man thinks he's a master of language, but language is the master of man. Right? If you don't change people's language, you don't change the way that they think. And so people who resist learning new words or new concepts, I think, are at the simplistic end of the scale. So, for example, I've introduced exaptive into the language, and that's now used. I've, I'm really proud of the fact I've got Derrida's concept of aporia into common, common conversational level within IT departments around the world. Nobody else has managed that with Derrida, so I'm particularly proud of that. But there's times when you spin in a new word because you have to create a new concept and you have to force people to think differently. So I, th I think, and, and then the other thing we've always said, and this is kind of like defines the three major frameworks I've created, well, two I've created and we're in the process of creating. They're all designed to pass what's called the back of a table napkin test. If you can't draw them from memory on the back of a table napkin, they have no utility for active sense making. Um, because if you have these models you have to take around, you're creating a dependency on consultancy, right? And it doesn't mean that you don't have depth. I mean, Kinevin has about six different layers, but the, the initial three plus one thing anybody can draw and talk about without the need to go deeper. So I think simpler allows for deeper. Simplistic is always what I call shallow skimming, right? It's, it's, and, and we got a lot of that in complexity at the moment. I mean, Einstein also said this is the age of complexity. And I'm actually now starting to emphasize sense making is what I do, not complexity, because you can see the big consultancies picking it up. You can see the world and his wife deciding they're into complexity. The whole of the cybernetics community and systems dynamics community are desperate to have modern relevance. So they're now saying they deal with complexity. And the, the danger is terms get denigrated. We saw the same with knowledge. I mean, you know, I started in knowledge management and now it just means information management. It means nothing else. Yeah. So sorry, I rambled a bit around on that. Um, That's helpful, Dave. So just to, yeah. to follow up, I mean, how, how then would we know if something is simple or simplistic? What, what, what would we look for? I think you should be able to get 50 or 60 percent of something on first hearing yeah and it should be you should know enough to become curious to dive deeper so i, I have a general view on keynotes all right and i do a fair amount of them if, if i end up with a third excited a third confused and a third thinking i should be thrown into the deepest pit of hell then i think i've succeeded right <laughs> um the last thing you want is for everybody to be happy because that, that generally means you're doing what most keynotes do, which is about a bunch of platitudes that nobody can disagree with. So I think this, this it, it's, it, something is simple if it makes you think differently in this field. It's not simple if you can just run with it. It, it is actually Derrida's concept of aporia. Yeah, he famously says, if you know the answer to a question, it's not a question, it's a process. The only valuable questions are one that you can't answer, so you have to think differently. And I think really good, simple frameworks do exactly that. They make you think differently, but they also enable you to think differently. It's not just a, a confusion. Yeah, I mean, I really found when I came across your work, I think it was on the Be, Being Human podcast, actually, where I, I first encountered you. I, it was a bit of a light bulb moment. It just made a lot of sense to me. 
the Knefin framework complex complicated, it made me then go and explore what's the distinction between complex and chaotic, and then sort of really got into the weeds of trying to find out, well, what's the roots here in sociology, in in the natural sciences, but of course also the social sciences, which is which is my field, which led me to is it um Felicio? Well, why do than that? There's there's a famous Knevin article written by somebody in the cabinet office where they use Knevin to explain the role of religion in the Bush White House. Which, which is a delight. It's on the website. And I'll never forget she phoned me up and she said, you've read Karl Rahner, haven't you? And I said, I actually study under him. How the hell did you know? And she said, it comes through in Knevin. And that's going back to Catholic theology and philosophy. So I think we all, we all need to recognise we have these multiple threads, which, and that's what Knevin means. You're, you're in a flow over time with multiple threads, which you only partially comprehend and understand. But you've got to acknowledge that history as well as as well as where you are at the moment. Yeah, and as you say, I mean, it might be immediately accessible, but the Kinefin framework has maybe six layers of deeper meaning, and you can all you can go all the way back through various philosophical, um, you know, uh, traditions. So that you can go back to some of the the Kantian work on on interdependency and play yeah. play around with that. Um, but I was curious to ask I me mean, when you introduce this language into different audiences as a social scientist, as someone who works in the field of political science or global politics. Uh, I found a lot of my colleagues are quite resistant to, or I might say allergic to, uh, complexity theory. Um, you know, I've heard colleagues say that, well, complexity theory is, is a festival of bad metaphors, you know, or it's incredibly esoteric. And um, you've described complexity theory as a science for central uncertainty. And I can imagine some colleagues immediately reacting, you know, nervously to that description through science, uncertainty. Isn't that a bit of a sort of oxymoron? What do you think explains that reaction? And, and how, how would you convince them that this turn to complexity is, is actually really important? I think sometimes you convince them and sometimes you don't. I mean, there's a famous phrase in the Bible about, you know, pick up your sandals and shake off the dust if you can't be heard. And remember that new ideas are only, when you introduce a new idea, this is factors, curves or market life cycle. There's about 13.5% of the population who will get and understand what to do with a new idea. And if you can't live with that, you shouldn't do new things. Right. If if everybody gets it and you don't get that reaction, you really aren't pushing the boundaries at all. So we used to teach this in sales. All right. If you've got a late adopter company, don't sell novelty because they'll never buy it. It's a waste of everybody's time. And the same applies, I think, in this in this side of it. I think there's also there's a particular problem in this. I mean, I, I remember saying um, I created a two by two matrix once. I mean, you do two by twos every now and then because it makes feel people feel comfortable. All right. And I was trying to explain the whole concept of natural sciences against social science. Yeah. So if you look at natural science, people can replicate your experiments. Right. It doesn't mean that everything is, is an empirical observation. I mean, I come from physics. All right. In physics, the theory precedes the practice. It's not the other way around. Right? Which is actually, I think, where social science needs to come from, by the way. It's better to start with theory and then move into practice to test the assumptions. So you've got that. So you've got predictive capacity and you've got you know, a scientific understanding. Yeah? You then get social science, which generally has explanatory power, but not predictive power. 
So very rarely are experiments repeated, but the language and the, the discourse mechanisms allow people to think differently. Um, with a general problem is that there seems to be a desire to put yourself into categories all the time. So it's like, you know, critical realism is defined by not being social constructivism. And you look at them and say, why are you still having this argument? It's stupid, right? But they're both still in those sort of camps. So this desire to create the sort of ideological factions, yeah, I, I think is problematic. But that is because it's an explanation. And the ideology is my explanation is more important than yours. So you can see where that comes from, right? But it's more difficult to challenge. In natural science, I can challenge something. Yeah, because there's a mechanism for doing that, right? You then get all the popular management books, which uh, I hate to tell you, there's a lot of social scientists in their writing, which confuse correlation with causation, generally are highly selective on the evidence and just throw together something in a simplistic recipe. And that to me is pseudoscience. And then the other one, which is the one we do, which is to say natural science is a constraint. So what we're actually saying is social science needs to start with natural science as a constraint. So we, we know things about systems and we know things about people. Yeah. So there's things we can get rid of. So, you, you know, the idea of a rational actor, the enlightenment idea that if you give people the right information, they will make the right decision, which dominates political discourse in, in, on the left in the States at the moment. It's just complete and utter nonsense from any natural science perspective. We know how people make decisions. And it's like a five or six percent scan, and it's a sort of data fusion of multiple ideas and concepts. So once you realize that, you stop going down the wrong pathway and you start to explore other pathways. And I, I think that's where it gets interesting. Yeah. Um, and yeah, my first degree was physics and philosophy as a joint major, um, which meant I, sorry, the mathematicians hate this. I did the two fundamental disciplines in the humanities and the sciences, right? Um, but those two actually go together quite well because one of, the, one of the advantages of physics and biology is there now as well, by the way, um, is that you've got an inherent contradiction in physics between general relativity theory and quantum mechanics. So physics lives with a permanent set of paradoxes, right? And, and philosophy does that naturally, right? So I think that we need to get more transdisciplinary, not multidisciplinary on this and we need more people in different fields. The trouble is the journals and academic promotion are driving people into higher and higher specialization in deeper and deeper ideological disciplines. So these days, if you have a novel idea, you've got to create a new journal to get it published. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, uh, I, I found some of your work on enabling constraints, governing constraints, very helpful. And it obviously led me down the path to also looking at the work of Alicia Juarero and, and mm -hmm. other scholars who are, you know, they are in other disciplines, but clearly it has relation to, say, path dependency, which is a very prominent methodological theoretical framing in political science and sociology. Yeah, I think we found a way to break path dependency in human systems. That's one of the things that's got me excited at the moment. Okay, that's that's uh, <laughs> maybe you need to just uh, which is kind of like taken for granted in complexity theory, yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so I, I mean, I got enabling constraints from Alicia in the first place. A book from Amazon actually is still a classic, but it's actually quite noticeable. Most of the people who started to look at complexity in human systems are philosophers. Hmm. Yeah, you've got Alicia. Yeah, you you've got Max Boisseau, Yeah. Um, you've got Paul Killiers, I could go on with a long list, right? And I think it's 
And it's quite interesting, actually, continental philosophy is easier to match with modern natural science than British linguistic philosophy. Yeah, I found Paul Killian's work on a lot easier. complexity yeah. very compelling, uh, really thought-provoking. Yeah, it's a pity about the title, but there's nothing to do with postmodernism, but never mind, all right? But, um, it was funny, you send PhD students over to me. Oh, really? Yeah, sort of, well, we used to disagree profoundly, generally over wine in Stellenbosch, right? And he used to send PhD students on the basis they needed to be beaten up, and he knew I would do that for him. So it was always entertaining. <laughs> Good cop, bad cop. All right. Um, I want to hand over to Sam. Sam. Thanks, Tom, and thanks, Dave, for kicking the podcast off so far. I, I wanted to talk about a previous episode we've actually had with uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger, and we talked about the dangers of one of the more popularized ideas of survival of the fittest. And oh, God. yeah, could you explain to me why that isn't? And I would obviously agree that it isn't because to many that might be, strike them as a, a simple idea that is both a natural science idea. And so it, why is this not a hallmark of an amazing... It's, it's neo-Darwinianism, all right? So it, it's, and it's neo-Darwinianism. You don't find it in Darwin. Right, that Darwin actually, which is what I think most modern evolutionary biologists would say, is evolution is more about affordances and luck than it is about survival of the fittest. All right, and if you look at Gould's work, all right, on acceptation, which we draw on a lot, it's stress on an existing trait to allow it to effectively jump sideways. So the human cerebellum, you know, originally evolved to manipulate muscles in fingers, but it accepts to manage grammar in language. So what you've got is, yeah, evolution becomes a sort of serendipitous flow rather than something which is tooth and claw, right? And part of the problem here is that, I mean, Dawkins popularized some of this in The Selfish Gene, which is one of the most truly appalling books ever written. Um, I mean, I, I remember once Mary Midgley taking him apart at Hay and Why, right? I mean, Midgley famously said Dawkins is trying to create a scientific justification for Thatcherism. Um, and basically accused him of scientism by making science into a religion. And you can see that if you go on his website, there are testimonies to people who became atheists after they heard him preach. I mean, it's like a, it's like a religious revival site, right? And Eva Jablonka, you know, who's brilliant, one of the leaders on epigenetics, which is absolutely fascinating. Anybody involved in politics needs to know about epigenetics. And she famously said, well, nobody in genetics ever took Dawkins seriously anyway, because it's the wrong unit of analysis. Um, and Terry Eagleton traced him back to Heracles. It's kind of like this desire to have something which is definitive from which everything else can develop. Okay? And that is very, very problematic. And as I say, it's, it's actually pretty bad science. So on that, now we've established that that isn't the kind of keystone of a good heuristic. I wondered if you could elaborate a bit about cognitive biases i know you've said before how they can often be kind of conflated and what's a heuristic and what's a cognitive bias just so that the listeners okay. and viewers can really discern that so the, the, if, if you look at the literature moment, there's five schools of sense making of which mine is one right another is gary klein who's a colleague and i work with him right he's famously says and i agree with him there's no such thing as a cognitive bias there are only cognitive heuristics yeah, that, that fundamentally, if you actually look at everything which is a so-called cognitive bias and you look at it in the round in evolutionary terms, it has evolutionary advantage. Overall, it, it, because it reduces the energy costs of making decisions. Yes, it produces errors, right? 
but th that scene. So I think that's that's one thing to understand about it. All right, heuristics are different from biases. Heuristics are well, they evolve naturally in human systems anyway, and they come out in sort of key quotes and phrases. You know, a lot of people put quotes; those are actually heuristics. Um, you know, don't put new wine into old wineskins. That's a, that's a that's a metaphor type heuristic if you, if you look at it. So you see them in religious texts. So heuristics are ways of condensing deep experiential knowledge into a simple, memorable form. Um, and some of our narrative work is to extract the heuristics from people's narratives, structure them, and then attach them to teaching stories. Yeah, so they, they work differently for rules. But I, I wouldn't put any of that in the sort of bias section. They're, they're, remember, evolution tends to reduce energy. That, that has major implications for what we're thinking about in the next generation of foresight, by the way, is energy gradient mapping, because that gives you predictability. Whatever has the lowest energy gradient is going to win. All right, so so-called biases are actually about reducing energy cost. Yeah, and I said that has implications for change. If you want to change things, yeah, to put it simply, the energy cost of sin has got to be greater than the energy cost cost of virtue. If it's the other way around, it doesn't matter what you say or what you do, it won't work, and that's the problem we've got with global warming at the moment. Yeah, the, the energy cost of not taking it seriously is radically lower than the energy cost of taking it seriously, so nothing is going to change. So, Dave, maybe that's a good segue to ask you to see if we can connect this or how you would connect it back to questions of governance at a global scale, which I suppose is kind of the meta theme of the conversations we're having here and addressing these kinds of, you know, not just the traditional dangers like, say, conflict and warfare, but also these new dangers such as climate change um it seems like we're in a bit of a we're a bit stuck because you're kind of trapped between the the fact that it's impossible to ignore the power of the global anymore but we don't really have global agency so how do yeah if, if you want a prediction I yeah. think china are more likely to get to net zero than any other country because they're not inhibited by democratic process. In fact, they're already, I mean, they're already, you can see what they're doing in their, their overall energy policy. You can see they're getting ready for some major moves there, right? Um, they're just not prepared to play the game, right? So democracy is a problem when you face existential threat. And let's, just get, let's be honest about that. You, you, you know, armies are not democratic, Right? Because the whole concept of sacrifice is problematic in a consensus-based environment. Uh, Terry Eagleton's written two brilliant books and recommending anybody in climate. If you, if you don't know Terry Eagleton, he's, he's a brilliant author. Hasn't written a bad book and he's written hundreds of the bloody things, all right? But one is hope without optimism. So that, that and I think that's key for anybody who's an activist at the moment is, I mean, the old Catholic theology is you, if to give up hope is a mortal sin. But it doesn't mean you've got to be optimistic. Yeah, so he picks up on that and what it means. The other one is the concept of radical sacrifice. Now, human beings are capable of sacrifice. We're the only species which does it outside a kinship group. So the issue is, how do you make sacrifice something which is a dispositional state in respect of the environment? Now, the only way you can, I mean, and this, I'm having some long conversations with, if you know Tyson who wrote Sand Talk, so we've got this Welsh meets Indigenous thing going on at the moment in a series of webcasts, which is fascinating, right? 
Um, but if you don't know it, the English attempted to eliminate the Welsh language round about the time they eliminated other indigenous languages using the same method. So we, you know, we got grandparent stories in common on that, right? But one of the things we're talking about is a need for sort of peace and reconciliation with the planet, let alone other groups. Right. So you've got this concept of, you know, man is there to exploit the planet, which, by the way, is not a Christian thing. That's actually a Protestant thing. If you, if you go back, that comes out of the Reformation, the primacy of the individual and everything else. And that's stuck with us since. Right. So if you want people to make sacrifice, you've got to create a dispositional state in which sacrifice around ecology is the norm. So we've got a big project, a narrative project running at the moment where we're trying to gather small stories of things which have made a difference. So we can start to cluster those and use them to create a viral effect. Because until lots of people are doing small things which change their attitude, you haven't got the dispositional space in which a politician is able to make a longer-term thing. Now, COVID has been interesting there um, because, uh, famously said on one podcast, that you know, COVID is God's gift to humanity because it's a chance to get things right before the really bad things happen. And that's not just global warming, it's a sort of bacteria thawing out in Siberia at the moment, which are scaring the living daylights out of people, right, in terms of what they might do, um, particularly with the lapse of antibiotics. So the trouble is that COVID was proximate, so people were prepared to make a sacrifice. Um, global warming isn't proximate, right? So in order to get the sacrifice, you've got to make it proximate. And you know, aspirational stuff, giving people better information doesn't work. In fact, most of the reports coming out, I mean, mean I mean, speaking with a partner of a major consultancy firm the other day, very intelligent person, yeah, who's just not reading the news anymore. She's decided it's over. Um, I, it's a sort of level of you know, despair, and therefore there's no point. You might as well make hay where the sun shines, right? to use that sort of phrase. So I think that that's one thing. Now, some of the stuff we're doing at the moment, um, we've done it in six countries now, we're doing it on a peace and reconciliation project in the States, is to make children ethnographers to their own communities. Right Now, that fits in with the sort of Future Generations Act in Wales. If you don't know, Wales is the only nation to have passed a law which says no legislation can be passed which doesn't take into account the needs of the next generation. Uh, and we got a commission to enforce it, right? Now they're talking about it in England, but it's gone to the House of Lords, which means nothing will happen, right? Um, but what we've actually found, and you know, if you use schools and church groups and sports clubs and children go into their communities, they act effectively as journalists. It can be part of a school program, part of a sports club. So it's nothing special, it's something they enjoy doing. But from that, we get quant data backed up by narrative. Our whole approach is quant, not qual. And this is a big problem for social science, by the way. Core will convince nobody, all right? Quant convince at scale. What we're also finding, and then we're doing things like transgenerational parents. So we're putting very young people together with their grandparents' generation to come up with ideas for local improvement based on a direction. I want more stories like this, fewer stories like that. That's a new theory of change. So you draw the dispositional state, yeah? you show where the dominant views are, and then you identify what Kaufman calls an adjacent possible. Or if you want to go to the frozen two approach, which is how I explain it, right? in the middle of frozen two, the real heroine of the movie, who isn't the one with the magic, it's the younger sister, sings, you know, do the next right thing. That's all I can do, is do the next right thing and look again, right? I mean, it's a beautiful 
beautiful song, and that movie is a bloody good complexity movie because that's actually all you can do. Yeah? But it's called The Adjacent Possible if you want the scientific language. And so what you want is the system to micro-nudge itself towards a different state. Yeah? And I had a major argument with Halpin in Downing Street years ago on this. And at the end of it, I said, you don't, yank, you don't nudge, guys, you yank. Right? We're measuring the dispositional state, and then we're allowing the community to find ways to nudge itself, but with a sort of general sense of direction. Now, I think, so that's one section. I think the other problem we got, and this is me getting more personal on this, I, I don't think democracy works on the one person, one vote at the level we run it. The democracy actually evolved for small constituencies where you knew who you were voting for. And if you go back to the British Parliament before 1940, people were constantly crossing the floor of the House. So the parties were constantly rejigging themselves. Yeah. Um, what happens after the war is the constituencies get too big. So you vote for a party, not for the person. Uh, so you lose that delegative capacity. It means safe seats. I mean, where I come from in South Wales, the Labour Party has been flying in middle-class kids from London who they want in Parliament for far too long. They did the same in Scotland with the result that they lose the constituency and nobody buys into what the politicians are doing, right? So I think we've lost that intimacy in, in terms of the way it works. So I've long thought, and you know, it's, it's like the European election. I mean, when we had Europe, when before the bloody English took us out of Europe, sorry, we're blaming the English for that. And we can prove it in Wales. It was English immigrants in the north who put us on the other wrong side of that one, right? Is... Um, in the European elections, the constituencies were just too big. So you had no idea what you were voting for, yeah? which is why you had low turnout. So I, I actually think we need this combination of the citizen jury. We, we can do that. So it means if we have every school in every country in the world doing that, and that's what we're bidding for money to do at the moment. It's not difficult to do. We're talking with the baccalaureate people. It satisfies requirements. And I've got a human sensor network gathering data in real time which can identify patterns and can allow localized hypernudging, right? So you get rid of opinion polls, you get rid of the sort of Freudian manipulation of people, which goes with focus groups and everything else like that. In fact, Freud and Jung have got a lot to answer for in this field. And then you have sort of delegative assembly. So you elect people in your area who then elect the next level. And remember, that's how the American constitution was written. It said, we can't elect somebody as a president on the popular vote, because we'll get demagogues and populists. So they came up with the idea everybody would elect some people they trusted to get together and choose a president. And I think it's a pity that they got rid of that. Yeah. Sorry, you got me on to a favourite thing, and I tend to rant on this subject. Um, I'm intrigued by this uh, role of intimate connection in political systems. Uh, I was wondering if you could expand on that from like a, a biological perspective, why would having an intimate connection to uh, a leader within a system be beneficial overall? And how can we sort of encourage that within our current democratic society? I think we need distributed decision-making, not centralized decision-making. I think that's important. One of the things we say in the EU handbook is the role of the leader is to coordinate and distribute decision-making except in a major crisis where the role of the leader is to make rapid decisions which increase the number of options available, but not to resolve the problem. And I'd sort of stand by that. Yeah. I think the other issue we got and the problem with the internet, I mean, it's, you, you should, there's a couple of podcasts out with the Facebook whistleblower 
And everybody should listen to those at the moment because it's really scary the way the thing clumps, right? So basically, political parties only survive in the current social media environment if they become more extreme. That's the only way they get attention, right? And nobody is addressing that. Now, I was involved in a row about this last week with some people I'm working on with the states. And I said, if you don't know it, um, you've got bot farms now which are targeting individual families with lies the day before they vote. And how the hell do you deal with that, all right? You know, it's, it's the believable lie. They're teaching porn in your local school, yeah, and, and that sort of stuff. Now, there's two ways to try and handle this, three ways to try and handle that. One is two of which they're doing, neither of which will work. One is to tell people it's going on because then they won't pay attention to it. Well, that is a classic white, liberal, middle-class, intellectual, if only we explain it to them, they'll understand, right? That's just nonsense, right? The other is to try and counter it, and that won't work. The left will never beat the right in a propaganda war. You know, the, the whole history is of that. The other way is the kind of like where we're experimenting with, which is if you increase person-to-person -person empathetic contact and you use the net to mediate that person-to-person -person contact, you've built a buffer into the system. All right, at the moment, the internet is an unbuffered feedback loop. Yeah, it's all looked after by machines of loving grace, to go back to that famous movie, right? Um, if you increase, and what we want to do with Children of the World, which is the name for the project, is to increase the human buffering in the system. And the other thing is adults pay attention to children more than they pay attention to other adults. So if you use children as your primary, around about the age of puberty, you don't see racial prejudice in kids until after puberty. Yeah, and you think about it in evolutionary terms, after puberty, you've got to adopt the prejudices of your society. Yeah, yeah you become plastic again late 40s, 50s, because if you survive that long in a hunter-gatherer society, you can't lead the tribe anymore. You've got to go into the wisdom business and start to teach. Right. So we actually put young people with older people because actually that's the prime innovation unit. Is somebody old and network with somebody young and bright? And if you think about it, innovation in the humanities is older people, natural sciences, younger people. You can see the same sort of pattern. Yeah. So I think what we've got to get, and this is intimacy, intimacy and proximity. You've got to get back to a level of intimacy within the system where you've got human validation of the process. Now, we almost broke Trump last a couple of, when he was first elected when people saw him dragging kids away from their families because they could have empathy with that. I mean, how he got away with that, it was so very close to destroying him, but then he managed to survive it, right? But you need that level of empathy to really, to really combat the sort of things that we're seeing. So going back to um, this idea of extremism being the only way for political parties to have an online presence, um, would uh, internet users are do you, in your opinion are they attracted to these extreme views as a way to supplement the lack of intimacy for the platform altogether to be part of a tribe? I think you got, you got some of that. I mean, a, a friend of mine in the Canadian Mounties, you know, I spent three months with in Singapore famously said, you know, it, it used to be fine. The, every village had an idiot, but everybody knew who the idiot was. But now the idiots have banded together onto the internet to legitimize idiocy, right? Which is a good way of phrasing it, right? But the reality is you've got super spreaders. So you've got people who basically constantly retweet material or, or like material. 
literally 10 to 20,000 items a day. And the algorithms therefore reinforce them. And the people who do that are automatically more biased. So there are things you can do. You can prevent people, you know, for example, you can force people to cut and paste beyond the secondary tweak. That, that puts a buffer in the system, yeah? Um, there's lots of things you can do. You can cap your limit. I mean, sooner or later, governments are going to have to get round to this, right, in terms of the way it works. And I, I'm quite hopeful about the exposure on Facebook at the moment, partly because I think Zuckerberg can't really understand that there's a problem, so he's not capable of doing the things he'd need to do before governments take action. Right? So there's some hope in that, all right? But the, the reinforcement is very scary, right? And and I maintain about eight or nine persona on social media with different VPN addresses. And you see completely different things, right? And things are actually taken out of time. And if, if you see things in time sequence, that's very different from if things are thrown around across time, for example. Yeah. And the algorithms are really, really scary in terms of what they do. So you could allow connectivity. And we do it through high abstraction metadata. So, for example, if a kid gathers a story from, say, yeah, their family's farming practice in Colombia. So we, we've done the project there with children of coffee growers. Yeah? And they then can say, well, there are any more stories like this. And then they should be able to find a story from somebody in Ethiopia, which actually gives them an idea, which they can move horizontally. Yeah. But the point about that is we're not doing it with an algorithm. We're doing it with them interpreting the data and then finding other similar interpretations. It's not an algorithm doing the interpretation. So we've added a layer of human meaning to the original narrative. And then we're linking and connecting based on human meaning, not on machine algorithms based on keywords. Right? And I think that that's the sort of thing we're trying to do on that. Yeah? You often hear in the in some of the, the, the global politics debates this this kind of almost a truism that global problems demand global solutions. What I gather from your work, Dave, is that you're really trying to actually drill down more on you know. There's that rather um, uh, it's hyper local, not global. You, you need you need you need multiple local solutions which can connect and reconnect in novel ways. And the key challenge that you seem to be really highlighting is that we've got to somehow make decisions on a really a, a human a human scale, um, but we have a big problem around collective social judgment. And I guess a lot of the prag pragmatists say, look, you know, we need to kind of ignore complexity. You know, we need to somehow just move through that, be realistic. Um, don't engage with the difficulties of altering discourse. Just go and ignore gravity and see what it does for you if you walk off a cliff. I mean, it's the equivalent of that. Complexity is. It's not as choice. If a system is complex, it doesn't have linear material causality. End of argument. It's deeply entangled. The only thing you know for certain is you'll get unintended consequences. So if you pretend complexity doesn't exist, you'll increase the number of unintended consequences and you'll increase the danger. And that's just one-on-one stuff. I mean, uh, you know, again, like that a quote from Einstein comes to mind, you know, it's sort of do the same thing twice, expect a different outcome is, uh, is a, it's, it's a sign of insanity. <laughs> but that's what people have been doing for decades. I mean, in many ways, sort of the, this idea of, of the economy or the political, political global life as operating within a closed system, conducive to linear, top-down, sort of, you know, mechanical interventions. Why, 
No, it's it's quite interesting. I mean, I, I had the privilege of teaching with Peter Drucker, um, which was a huge privilege. I taught you know two or three executive seminars on leadership with him, and I got there because I I made the mistake of attacking Taylorism on a platform just before him. And if you've ever been humiliated by a ninety-five-year-old genius. Used to, I was a puddle of humiliation on the floor of the stage in the hotel down in San Diego. Decided I was retrievable and took me out for dinner. And after that, we got on, right? And he was completely right. I wasn't attacking Taylorism. I was attacking systems thinking. So if you go back to Taylor and you go back to scientific management, Taylor is actually concerned to improve the lot of the workforce. He's not a dehumanizing person. He wants to take unhumane work and give it to machines. And if you actually compare what went before with what he did, okay, we look back at the production line and we think that's terrible. It was a damn sight better than what went before, right, in terms of the way he did it. And critically, he never got rid of the apprentice model of management, right? So the whole panoply of three-year plans, five-year plans, professional management, management consultants, all hits us in the 80s. It doesn't exist before then. Yeah. Um, companies expected to be around for years. Yeah, now people aren't. No, nobody's trying to create the next Apple or Google. They're trying to create the next thing that Apple or Google will buy. All right. So actually, value is constantly being reduced. Right, and you can blame most of that on systems dynamics and cybernetics and the engineering metaphor, which came in in the eighties. Right. So. It's a three of, I mean, if you want to take a Hegelian approach on this, you could say actually systems thinking is the antithesis for what went before. And the issue is, can we achieve a, a synthesis, right? It's not really different. But the concept of long-term employment, apprentice models for society, if you look at it, what happened from the 80s is wage differentials started to soar, whereas they were, they were going down until the 80s. Yeah, and now they're at ridiculous levels because you know, the means of exchange became more important. Yeah, you wouldn't. Trump would have never got. I mean, the whole concept of Trump or the anti-abortion stuff or anything like that in the states would not have survived in the sixties and seventies. Yeah, and also, and come back to it because you had a limited number of. You didn't have continuous news, so there wasn't the desire for constant novelty. Yeah, news commentators were reflective and trusted, all right? And you had a different sort of connected society, all right, in terms of the way things work. I mean, sorry, I'm getting sentimental now, but I mean, when I was a kid, you know, you, you, you negotiated what you were watching with your parents. So you actually had common stories and common language, right? And um, when my kids were growing up, everybody's in separate rooms, eating separately, watching different things. So you've had this disconnect. And I'm not saying you have to go back on that, but we've lost that hyper connection at a local level. And we didn't evolve to be fragmented, isolated individuals, but actually advertisers like us to be like that. And again, it comes back to the social media thing. What advertisers want is to cluster you into a group whose behavior is predictable. Yeah, so that moves towards sort of homogenization. Um, I mean, it's also, I guess, a, a sort of a, a focus on control, right? I mean, it's really a... It's it's almost a psychological maybe desire to to control, and one sees that sees that as represented in say barbarian models. Or it comes actually a bit back to your to your evolutionary point, right? And there are some conspiracy theories on the left who think this was all planned. If you actually look at Zuckerberg's history, it's a series of bloody accidents. 
you know, the, the social media is a classic example of evolution. It just sort of, you know, grew and then got out of hand and nobody put any buffers in it. Yeah. The other, the other uh, issue that comes to mind, Dave, is in a sense what's required, as you suggested, is kind of to break frame. And I, through your work and other people's work, I've engaged questions around ecology, the work of Gregory Bates and cybernetics. And it seems as if many of these individuals are indeed trying to break frame, but it's not just an intellectual exercise. In some respects, it's almost a, a complexity sensibility that they are, that they are um, pr promoting. And I know that you've described complexity as, as a combination of emergence, heuristics, and ambiguity. Uh, for many, for many scholars trained within sort of a a more sort of mechanistic institutional framing, again, that's that that is a challenging optic onto the world. And I yeah, it was very challenging for people who thought the tribute to their surgeons was that they had you know, unclean robes because it proved they cut quickly. All right. So you, you've got the same sort of problem. And, and by the way, you shouldn't really associate Gregory Bateson with, with what cybernetics has become. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm, Nora Bateson and I are doing a lot of work together at the moment. We're about to run a big seminar on um, abduction. And both of us are attacking stat models of maturity. So there's some interesting synergies going on there, all right, in terms of the way things work. That links in with the indigenous work. But we're about to extend that to the Turtle Institute in Canada. So they're next up on top of the Pacific Islands. So that's coming up in December, right? So I think you are starting to see a flux or a movement in the right direction. The issue is, can it come in time, right? And you've got the people who thought they were the revolutionaries in the 80s, the systems thinkers who just have lost it and they're desperately trying to cling on to it now. Yeah. Also, I remember one of them, he's... He, sorry, he said sorry. to me, but we've always dealt with complexity. And I said, yeah, people dealt with complexity before Newton, but then we had the maths of it. And he's still trying to work that one out, all right? But, um, I mean, also in the 80s, you had the, the influx of postmodernism, which you referenced briefly earlier. Uh, and again, maybe an effort to, to, to break frame. But it seems to me that a lot of postmodern thought tends to to really conclude that everything is reducible to power politics or power dynamics, power... Yeah. Speech, and if power you take Rorty seriously, then, then that justifies Trump. But you I mean, yourself... You, no, but but go, go, go to the, sort of the, the, great, the great female philosophers from Oxford and Cambridge in the Second World War. Midgley was one, yeah? Murdoch was another. They basically said there has to be a way of saying that some things are wrong. They weren't prepared to accept the relativism that seems to go with postmodernism. And if you wanted a reason for that, they had it in spades in the Second World War, and we got in spades with the populists we're dealing with now. And you, you yourself, you have used the work of, of, of some prominent theorists who we might call postmoderns, such as Deleuze and Guattari um, and others. And I was just curious to ask, I mean, in, in drawing upon their work around assemblage theory, uh, lines of flight and so on. I mean, that that seems to have been a very productive sort of... It has, because we, we could match an assemblage against a stranger tractor against a trope. So when, when I realised that the three were talking about the same thing, then you can... Remember I said, I think all of this stuff has huge explanatory effect, right? Yeah, but you have to be cautious about something which is an explanation, Right, which you don't have to be cautious. So, for example, stranger tractors, we know this, we know the scientific phenomena. We can model them, we can simulate them. So once you start to say that, that was what pushed me down a quant approach to micro narrative. 
because I needed to create a way of modeling strange attractors around human narrative, which is actually where, you know, that's where Deleuze was, yeah? And that's, that's what an assemblage is, certainly in Delander's interpretation. So if we can map that, then we can understand, the, and we, so, so we now talk about agency, assemblage, and affordance as three things you have to map. All right? And if you map those, you've got a much better capacity to understand what the hell's going on in the system than anything else. Dave, I wonder if we could turn to um, the COP discussions. Uh, I, I'm reminded of something that you mentioned elsewhere, uh, allowing the conversation to emerge through action. And I think you, you did that uh, in the kind of the troubles at Northern Ireland context, if I, if I remember right. And I was wondering how that would work or, or what that framework would look like applied to COP, because COP seems to be the kind of the summit theatre, the conversation that will lead to an action. But I, I wonder how that would work in the Davros, we'll, I mean, somebody said to me that they'd been up to it. It felt like Davros, which is singly useless, right, in terms of change, right? So my view is, is quite simple. What we did in Northern Ireland is we took people from both communities in small numbers and we dumped them into Latin America for six months. And they realized they had more in common than they thought, but we allowed them to have a conversation when they were ready to have a conversation. We didn't force them into a workshop or a summit where we would lecture them morally and tell them they should do things differently, right? Now, what we're trying to do with the whole Children of the World project is do that at scale, right? So literally, you know, at scale, through schools, through sports clubs, through young people, is linking and connecting people, yeah, around things that they see in common, which aren't major issues, because at the moment, the issues are too big. The minute the issue becomes big, it becomes ideological. If you can keep the issues small, people from radically different backgrounds can agree on something and do something about it. Yeah. I remember I did um, a month of field ethnography in a Tea Party community in the States for one political project I was working on. And then I remember going back to Boston and saying, you guys have got this completely wrong. These guys are all socialists. Yeah, they look after themselves. They're a small community. The church is the center of everything. Nobody is left out, right? And they can't understand why you don't see that. Yeah, and you're, you're designating them, and, and you, you just haven't understood what's actually going on at that sort of hyper-local level. And I'm just a red team for a second. Um, if we took the, the idea of cop leaders going to, you know, South America and, and discussing things and... And the last thing you want is that. Yeah. That's, but, that's, that's, that's what we're saying you shouldn't happen. Hmm. What you need is mass micro experiments being run through multiple agencies under broad heuristics, but not defined outcomes around things like climate change and social interaction and poverty. If we don't do something about poverty, nobody's going to do anything about climate change. Right? It's, it's that simple, right? And so what you want is lots and lots of small things going out at the local level, but an ability to link and connect them, which isn't mediated by bloody AI. Right? So, yeah, that, that's our ambition is to build that. And that's, in constructor theory, changes the substrate. Right? So if, if you change the substrate, different things are possible. And I want to just taking that approach, if we, I think you mentioned that the failures potentially of democracy when handling climate change. Um, a lot of the literature on climate authoritarianism has this kind of flexible, top down, bottom up, kind of influencing each other approach. So it's kind of very fragmented um, 
company-led approach, which feeds up into a kind of narrative which then influences and it's kind of cycle. Is that seen as a kind of a, a viable model for um, kind of changes and, and progress in the climate space? Something that Narka said ages ago in knowledge management always struck me. He said, change happens middle bottom up. It's not top down or bottom down, it's middle bottom up. Yeah, so top doesn't have time, bottom isn't aware. And I think that's why we're seeing schools and sports clubs and churches as the middle. It's the mediating unit which can stimulate local action, which then goes upwards. I had a bit of a question. Um, Apologise if I've not kept up. <laughs> so please do correct me if I'm wrong um, in my understanding of things. Um, it seems like in terms of narratives people have today, we're really pushed to disconnect from the systems that we're or the, the positions that we occupy and the impacts that we have. Um, do you feel hopeful in that there are nudges towards um, perhaps moves towards acknowledging our position and our impact we have on one another and on the world we live in. And I, yeah, I think that's my question. I, th I think it's happening, but it doesn't sustain. So there's Churchill's famous appalling statement, if you're not a socialist before you're 20, you're not intelligent. If you're not a conservative, when you're later on. Yeah, I, and I've always been appalled by that, all right? Um, the trouble is, well, and you can see a degree of despair and mental illness coming out of this in terms of fear mm -hmm. of the future, right? And I don't think we're helping that with fear-mongering. Yeah, I, I think that that's why we need to orientate people into, into I keep repeating this, into micro-actions about things that they can make a difference on, right? And the difference that makes a difference, right? It's... It, and, and then things can grow from that, right? It, it's, it's like at the moment we're trying to tend the forest and we've forgotten that we got rid of the fungal roots that connected the roots. And without the fungal roots, the forest will never be healthy anyway, right? And we're not, we're not, we haven't got that concept of community and engagement with the physical world. Yeah, so we, we've disconnected people. Ironically, people in cities are more connected with their physical place than people not in cities. Well, thank you, Dave. I, uh, I want to be respectful of your time. I hope maybe at some point we'll be able to pick, up, pick this conversation up again. But I certainly think, you know, what we're trying to do here with the podcast is to is to get us back to acknowledging some of those fungal roots. Um, and we really appreciate uh, your insights today. Yeah, happy to come back. Yeah, sorry, Thanks. I've got to go, but I've got a keynote to give in two minutes. <laughs> in Brazil and all the places. So. Really? Yeah. All, right. all right. Well, uh, thanks so much again. Look forward to, to, to being in touch. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Imperfect Utopias or Bust, Global Governance Futures. If you liked this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, other resources, listen to past shows, and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance.